In our last episode of As We Eat, we dug into another helping of delicious pie lore, including the twisted history of desperation pies and the storied origin of the fabled key lime pie and lemon meringue. In this episode, Ken poses that timeless question, what do horses have to do with hosting? And Leigh guides us through the hallmarks of great hosting with a tongue firmly in cheek. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lee. Hey, Kim. How are you today? I think I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Doing pretty well, too. Yeah, beautiful day here in Montana. We're getting all set and ready to take off here pretty quickly and get on the move. Oh, that's exciting. We are on the move as well here in uh, Seattle. We're moving into fall. <laughs> it's true. And we're moving into the holiday season. And that means parties, get togethers, and all manner of revelry. Did you know in 18th century England, women were expected to wear a corset, a bodice, stockings, a petticoat, a gown, ruffles, and shoes when attending a dinner. I love the fact that the shoes are also included in there. <laughs> it would take right. upwards of an hour for them to get ready. Oh my gosh. No, my guests are lucky to find me in any kind of shoes. <laughs> Much less with a bodice and, and all the other accoutrements as well. I'm usually working to the feverish last minute getting ready for guests. That's just how I seem to roll. Yep. Today, our rules of hosting have relaxed significantly. Obviously, if we can have our guests over without our shoes on. <laughs> exactly. I do try to get some on at the last minute. I want to make sure that's really clear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but there are some things that a good host needs to abide. As a matter of fact, when we were doing the research for this topic, Google came up with 1,240,000,000 results on the subject. Wow. But rather than tell you what you should do, I'm going to share seven things that you should never do as a host or hostess. Thing number one, don't forget to provide napkins for your guests. Wiping your hands on the tablecloth was not only accepted, but expected during the Crusades from about 1000 AD to 1300 AD. Although the Romans employed large cloths called mappa while they were eating reclined, and paper napkins were said to have originated in China during the second century, the use of napkins really didn't come into fashion until about the 16th century, when several types of napkins were used depending upon the service that was required. When the fork arrived, the use of napkins fell from favor in some cultures while it reduced the size of the napkin in other cultures. It made eating a little less messy in some cases. By the 18th century, Tablecloths and napkins were considered a table service. So whether you decide to use cloth or paper is completely up to you. Just know that Emily Post has given you approval for paper napkins saying, 
it is far better form to use paper napkins than linen napkins that were used at breakfast. Thing number two, don't forget to provide a fork in the table setting. We believe here at As We Eat that this once disdained piece of cutlery should be present at table at all times. It may be hard to overcome Hildegard of Bingen's branding of the fork as godless or Martin Luther's appeal to God to preserve him from the fork or of it being a symbol of unnecessary luxury or a strictly gender-specific utensil. Hmm. But with the advent of meals consisting of more than just gruel for which a spoon was sufficient, the fork really has become a necessary evil. Now, it's not necessary to include a toasting fork, a deli fork, an ice cream fork, a dessert fork, a cocktail fork, a fish fork, a spaghetti fork, and a fruit fork, unless you're serving any of those dishes. No. You can simply get by with a table fork and maybe a salad fork if you're feeling a little fancy. Fancy! (laughs) I've never had an ice cream fork. I I eat ice cream with a fork because I believe with all my heart that you can taste the ice cream better than on a spoon. The spoon gets in the way of the flavor for me. I will... I could see that because you're effectively brushing your entire tongue against the bottom of the utensil as opposed to a fork, which would allow the flavor of the the item to come through the tines, between the tines. I'm going to try it. I'm like really intrigued by it now. But truthfully, I had never heard of or even (laughs) thought of eating ice cream with a fork. Wow. I'm glad I could share that with you. I am too. I feel really yeah. excited about this. In fact, I know I even know the ice cream I'm going to go get after this. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. I'm ready. <laughs> Thing number three, don't segregate the children. Yes, there was a time when children were required to stand behind the adults and wait for the adults to hand them food so that they could eat. And there was also a time when they would suffer the consequence of looking at someone else at the table when they were eating, and they were not allowed to speak unless addressed by adults. But those days have long since passed. Children can be a welcome addition to conversations at the table, and how else are they going to learn table manners if they're not at the table? Exactly. Thing number four, don't forget a discard dish. Once considered proper table etiquette, the throwing of chewed bones under the table is not tolerated today. For one, not everyone has a dog who can benefit from said bones. No, if you're serving finger foods such as chicken wings, any food on a stick, or with pits, please have a bowl that your guests can easily access to discard these non-edible parts. Thing number five, don't leave the salt and pepper in the kitchen. Although it was commonplace for pepper to never appear on the dining table and was only available to cooks who used it very heavy-handedly up until about the 17th century, it's important to allow your guests to season their meals as they see fit. Mm -hmm. Now, we do understand that this is a bone of contention with some chefs. However, we here at As We Eat hold fast to the notion that we each have a different taste preference, and therefore our dining experience should be left up to each of us. Now, in regard to salt, should you choose to demonstrate your social status, by all means, please employ a salt seller. If you need more information on the customs behind these sometimes ostentatious vessels, 
please refer to our episode 21, the first installment of our kitchen technology series. Though, if you're not able to employ a trinchante to walk around dosing your guests' food with salt from the end of a knife, we recommend a simple salt shaker. And refer back to our belief that we should each have the ability to season our meals to our heart's content. Thing number six, don't forget to allow space for coats and especially hats. Though it was considered appropriate and necessary to keep hats on during a meal to ensure that lice didn't fall into the food, today (laughs) hygiene precludes this ritual for the most part. And because our homes now have central heating, it's become unnecessary for your guests to remain bundled up. This space doesn't require a lot of pomp and circumstance, or even tickets. A bed of a guest room suffices quite nicely. Thing number seven, don't forget to ask for help. There was a time when banquets, soirees, and get-togethers were more about displaying your social status and wealth. We hope that your get-togethers are more about community and connection. To that end, don't be shy about asking your guests to bring a favorite dish or even help with cleanup after the event. For the most part, people love to be asked to be involved in some fashion. Wow. Wow. What a fantastic list. These are all very salient points. When I was preparing for this episode, I wanted to dig into the sense of like, why do we have these rituals around inviting people into our homes, around sitting around a table? And so that's the basis of my research for our topic today. So I have this question for you, Leigh, this timeless age-old question. What do horses have to do with hosting? Any guesses? Maybe knights, chivalry. Yes, you are on to it. The social graces that we practice today often stem from a very influential concept in human history, and that's the codes of chivalry intended to guide the behavior of knights and gentlemen and gentlewomen. Popularized in medieval literature, uh, namely the legend of Britain's King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, the codes of chivalry have built on ethics from the Carolinian Empire, which idealized the life and behavior of cavalrymen, and the word chivalry itself derived from the old French term chevalierie, or horse soldiery. When you think about it, the act of owning and caring for a horse is a fairly expensive endeavor. And so those who could afford to keep horses were perhaps a class above and beyond the, the regular hoi polloi. Deeply influenced by Moors and eloquent Arabic literature as well, chivalry came to be understood as a moral, religious, and social code of knightly conduct. The particulars of the code varied, but always emphasized the virtues of courage, honor, and service. The concept of chivalry also came to influence the life and the manners of knights at home in his castle as well as his court. So not only were knights and gentlemen expected to have these chivalrous traits, but the people around him, including his family, his servants, were also expected to have some attitudes in this vein as well. By the late Middle Ages, the notion of a code of conduct became a major, broad moral system blending warrior ethos, knightly piety, and courtly manners. Wealthy merchants started adopting chivalric attitudes leading to the creation of the courtesy book, or basically a historic version of what we would call an etiquette book today. These books promoted a post-medieval gentlemanly code that valued one's honor, respect for women, and concern for those less fortunate. 
The oldest courtesy books date to the 13th century, but they became a really influential genre on their own in the 16th century, with the most influential of them being Il Cortigiano from 1508. These courtesy books covered both basic etiquette and decorum and provided models for sophisticated conversation, often what we see and hear around our dinner tables today. In the 18th century, the notion of courtesy was actually replaced by that of gallantry, an idealized display of affected sensitivity in direct contrast with the ideals of self-denial and dignified seriousness that were the Baroque norm. This shifted again in the 19th century after the Napoleonic Wars with the emergence of a middle class which echoed court ideals but also acted on its own sense of worth. We still see the edges of chivalry in how we think about inviting guests into our homes and the actions that we take there to make them feel comfortable. And comfort and ease is my guiding principle as a host, but I also see it as a two-way mirror. By showering my guests with graciousness, generosity, and friendship, I intend to reap what I sow. So I'm affecting their regard for me, their regard for my home, by showing them that they're welcome in my domain, and that I'm going to do what I can to make them comfortable. Some years ago, I saw my fundamental and fairly up-to-this-point unspoken philosophy mirrored in a New York Times magazine series on the art of the dinner party. In a column for the series, Chef Gabriella Hamilton described her awakening to the value of a dinner party when she faced the what she calls delightful aftermath of her parents' dinner parties while she was growing up. To quote, To me, it has always seemed clear that a dinner party is about what is said, not what is eaten. There would always be wine and salad and bread and stew, chocolate and fruit and nuts and sparkling cold duck. But those were just the props, the conduits for funny and real and meaningful conversation, the set pieces of a lively, engaged, lingering old school dinner party, the one that I have been chasing ever since, end quote. And I felt this so deep in my soul. I remember as a new adult, having visions of all the beautiful, fancy dinner parties I was going to have in my own home, at my own table, with my own china and crystal and forks and napkins and tablecloths and salt cellars. I could picture the candlelight. I could picture the banter I would have between my guests and that beautiful, warm silence that accompanies when people are eating. You're quiet, and yet you're not. You're in this communal shared silence of eating. And those are my favorite moments of a dinner party. I also love it when people settle back into their chairs and start to put napkins and utensils down, and wine glasses are refilled, and the conversation deepens like a good roux, just building on itself and building time and familiarity. My first real dinner party was an immensely humble affair, but that glow of pride at the end of the evening was everything to me because it meant that I had come into my own as an adult, as a real person. So even though it was humble, <laughs> I made all kinds of crazy mistakes. I memorably fed artichokes to a guest who had never had them before, who took a look at the plate, a look back at me, a look at the plate, back up at me, and asked in the most perplexed voice, why are you feeding me weeds? And it didn't dawn on me until that moment that perhaps there was a gap between what I knew and what I expected at the table and what my guests perhaps were prepared to do. So some of the things that I like to think of when I'm, I'm preparing, and I'd love to hear your perspectives on these as well, is considering the menu. Mm. 
Ask your guests about their dietary needs, restrictions, and preferences, and be prepared to accommodate them without judgment. Please don't make a vegetarian dish with a chicken or beef stock. There are ample resources on ways to prepare a delicious, elegant vegetarian entree. Don't make them just eat the salad course. And there are growing resources for equally important dietary needs like being gluten-free or dairy-free or low-sodium. Do your best, and if you can't, let your guests know that they need to help you accommodate them. You definitely don't want to feed somebody something that they might actually be really allergic to. To your point, I think that including your guests in the meal planning even if they don't bring something, but to ask them what their preferences are, I think that's a sign of a gracious host. Yeah. And it also, for me, provides me with this ability to be super creative. Like you said, yeah. it, it, nobody wants to go to a dinner party, either being vegetarian or vegan or with celiac or even just gluten intolerance and say, here's your salad. No. I mean, there are so many ways to create amazing dishes that those people will be able to eat. And participate in the meal as an equal participant and not exactly. some half-wanted guest that you weren't caring enough to accommodate. Whenever we had guests at home when I was a younger person, my job was to greet them at the door Assure them that they were welcome to enter, express delight in their presence, and after a few minutes of greeting, offer refreshment. Another thing I like to do is make really smart introductions. So I try to aid a conversation by pointing out a commonality between guests, like, Hello, Lay, let me introduce you to Eric. You're both avid readers. Or uh, otherwise, just aid in breaking the ice. This is Janet, who just returned from a three-week trip to Africa, and I'd like to introduce you to George, who's a master garden with a passion for peonies. Something that can help folks get to know each other and have conversation without you if you have some last-minute things you need to take care of. Or you have to greet other guests. And the other thing I think is really important about being a good host is knowing when to save the day. Because I know more than a fair share of people that I do like to have at dinner parties, but who get a little carried away. So chances are you might need to save one guest from another if the conversation seems a little too one-sided. Some of us, <clears throat> like me, can be fairly loquacious and we get carried away talking about butter. That's a true story. But a gentle interjection, check on status of drinks, ask a trivial question can help to gauge whether the party is flowing as needed. And you can make adjustments from there. Otherwise, good food, good conversation at the table, Try to avoid topics that are going to cause a lot of disharmony, but knowing that as adults, we hopefully should be able to learn how to talk to each other without wanting to stab each other with our blunted butter knives. Or our godless forks. Or our godless forks. Now, I do feel that we'd be a little bit remiss if we didn't talk about what it means to be a gracious guest as well. And so here are my hallmarks, and Leif, please feel free to add on. Accept or decline an invitation promptly. Don't make your host wonder if you're going to be attending or not attending because hosts need to figure out how much provisions they need to get and how many bottles of wine they need to open. If you leave them guessing or you show up at the last minute without any warning, it can cause a kerfuffle. Prepare yourself appropriately to the theme. If your friend is throwing a three-hour very formal dinner party, maybe this is not your moment for yoga pants. Arrive on time. And by that, I mean, do not arrive late and don't arrive early unless you're invited. 
There is nothing worse than as a host trying to make sure I've got everything. I usually have things timed to a T and someone shows up 15 minutes early and I have to figure out how to entertain them while at the same time finishing my task. I think it's nice to bring a small gift to benefit the house. And that could be a bottle of wine or a bouquet of flowers or a selection of fine chocolates. I don't think it's necessarily helpful that it's paper towels. I, I had a guest do that to me once. Just <laughs> brought over some paper towels because their thought was everyone needs paper towels. And while he wasn't wrong, at the same time, it just was incredibly awkward. Now, maybe last year, a case of toilet paper would have been yes, good. That Although been... you shouldn't have been having parties. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Another hallmark of being a gracious guest, enjoy the meal. And I really can't stress this enough. What I mean by that is understand that your host, who may may be your cook as well, has chosen that meal in mind. Hopefully they've asked you your preferences. And so you're not trying to battle being served roast beef when what you really want is a roasted carrot. But appreciate the meal. Savor it. Don't wolf it down. I think that's one of the greatest compliments you can pay to somebody who, who likes to entertain and who likes to cook. I agree. It takes a long time to put any kind of a get-together together. Yeah. And we spend a lot of time carefully planning and carefully cooking. To be careful about how you're eating is also very important. Yeah. Honor the food. Honor the chef. Yes. Ask questions about how the meal came together. I think yeah. that would be, I would love it if my dinner guests had curiosity about what we were eating and why we were eating it. Yeah. Because there's often a feeling that you put into designing a menu. There might be a progression of flavors. And I think that one of the coolest conversations you can have at the table is about the food that you're eating and where it comes from and how it's prepared. I completely agree with you, Leigh, about a host needing to ask for help when they need it from their guests. And in turn, I would say, offer to help your host. But don't argue with your host about the helping. Okay, you've made the offer and your offer has been actually graciously declined. So then let it, let it be. You don't need to argue about who gets to do the dishes. Go home at <laughs> some point. Yes, please. <laughs> don't overstay. I know this is a part of emotional intelligence that sort of helps you guide whether you overstayed your welcome or whether you know, it's maybe too early to go and that might be perceived as rude. It's I can't give you a better guideline than that. But at some point, I think three hours is a good for a dinner party can be is, is plenty adequate, especially if there's conversation and people are feeling good. But read the room. <laughs> there will come a point when your host might make some motions that indicate that it's time for you to go. Like if they're yawning, looking at you and yawning. Yeah. What I have learned, and I, th I think it's utterly delightful, is that in England, you, if you come for tea, you are only expected to stay through one pot of tea. So if your host gets up to make a second pot of tea, that is your clue that you have stayed too long. I don't know how that we would do that here, though, because I, I would be, do you want another bottle of wine? No, the answer is going to be yes. So that <laughs> wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, it's, can I get you anything else? It's subtle, right? Because sometimes yeah. you can say that, but you mean it. Like you, you mean, oh, I want to make sure you're comfortable and, and we're having a great conversation. And so let me just check in with you. Are you doing okay? But yeah, if, are you still hungry? Might, <laughs> might be a clue. Yawning is a very yeah. big clue. And I think unless you're like 
a super young adult and you you're partying a lot, 10 p.m. is probably a pretty good cutoff point. You should probably start heading home by 10, yes. unless you started your evening at nine, which is right. feasible in, in part, certain parts of the world. And final thought on the being a gracious guest is to say thank you. I I think nothing to this day nothing beats a handwritten card, especially in this day and age when we are accustomed to sending texts yes. and emails. But if nothing else, a text, an email, a phone call, just mention it, that you enjoyed the company, that you enjoyed the, the dinner party, and that you thank them for including you. Okay, I said a final thought, but I'm lying. Because I really want to talk about phones at the table. Because I think in 2021 and beyond, it's really hard to imagine a tablescape without a cellular phone present. And even though... They are probably ubiquitous part of our life now. I, I would be remiss if I didn't touch on what I feel we're starting to lose because of that, especially at the bigger party. And again, I'm quoting from the article I had quoted from earlier. This is an essay from Chef Gabrielle Hamilton. Quote, But just when I could finally afford to buy my first 13-quart heavy enamel Le Creuset lidded pot and invite people to dinner around a real table, not a Salvation Army jobby, Guests started coming to dinner with their phones, the glow of those screens as lethal to the conversation as empty seats had been. People passed them back and forth to show photos meant to illustrate things they used to describe verbally. We stopped looking at one another across the table and started crowding in on one another, staring together at a tiny handheld screen. Someone was holding up an explanation of a trip to India, the fog from a morning run. Quickly, our vocabulary shrank. Instead of summoning words, people tapped on images. People stopped finishing their sentences. And in startlingly short order, they could no longer describe with language the places they had been, the way they had felt in the dark night, the powerful weight of the tropical winds and the humidity of their recent vacations, the dirt road they got lost on, the woman who brought milk and bread and butter and yogurt to their pension. There were fewer well-told stories at the dinner table, fewer compelling twists and pauses, fewer meandering conversations among the group until there were almost no more wire champagne cages gently twisted into the shapes of animals. We had our hands full with our phones, end quote. Mm. The, way she, yeah, the way she talked about losing our language yes. really stuck out at me. How often, how eager we were to jump to our phone to answer questions. Like, oh, who was in that movie with a thing? Oh, one minute, I'll, I'll figure it out. And it was like we had these instant answers, which is a wonderful thing. <laughs> and yet it, it did rob us of a lot. And the, the loss of language, the loss of vocabulary, I have felt acutely. I had a dinner party after reading this article, and, and there was a distinct moment where I looked around and I caught all of us looking at something and not talking to each other. And as I said before, I've been chasing that feeling my whole life of having people at the table, having those warm conversations, having those moments where you tell a joke and it becomes a sort of group joke, the inside joke. And no matter how many times I stage a dinner party, I won't have that unless we can figure out a way to let the phone be and actually learn how to talk to each other again. I'd love to hear how other people handle phones at the table now. When do you reach for your phone? Do you put it in your pocket? Do you keep it on silent? Do you let it ring? Do you answer? Do you not answer? If, if someone poses a question that could be answered pretty easily, like who, who was in that movie with the thing, 
are you able to let that go? If you get a notification for Facebook, you have to check it. <laughs> like, these are some of the questions that chivalry never anticipated. I think chivalry was meant to be this guidance for living in a way that was clean and orderly and thoughtful. Our tableware and our table manners have evolved in that sense of what it means to lead a clean and orderly life. And I wonder what our manners will be in the future, both as a host and as a guest. But speaking of tradition, there are a lot of things that we have yet to look forward to for the holiday season. And As We Eat is very proud to be bringing you the Elementary Advent Calendar kicking off on December 1st. So we will be presenting some mini episodes on some really interesting, we found them interesting anyway, dishes that are typically served during the holiday season. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this episode with a friend and review and rate it. Five stars, please. We also publish the As We Eat journal on Substack. We would be honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We'll take some tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, and travel stops. There's four subscription tiers. We're sure you'll find one that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our multi-platform storytelling project exploring how food connects, defines, and inspires.
season. <laughs>